0: My name is Sarah Armstrong, and this is episode four of The Summer of Spying. In this series, I explore the evidence presented during a court case held in 2020, during the pandemic, and on which I was a juror. In this episode, we hear from the defendant and begin deliberations. We are only giving personal details about the defendant. He's in his late thirties, and at the time of the incident owned his own building company which employed other people. It has folded now. He has three young children with his partner, the youngest being only a few months old at the time of his arrest. He's been on remand in Chelmsford Prison for nine months. He looks around the jury, his eyes not focusing on anyone in particular. He is reasoned and thoughtful on the stand and looks relaxed, his body language open, apart from when he discusses his family, which he seems to find hard. After that he speaks easily, as if we've just met him and he's being interviewed for a job he knows he could do. That night he's been out for a meal with his wider family and has drunk too much. On the way back he argues with his partner in the car, so she leaves him at home to calm down and takes the children somewhere else. She also takes the keys to his car to stop him doing anything stupid. Alone the defendant doesn't calm down but becomes angrier. Everything is focused on that house he had worked on and not been fully paid for, and he makes the decision to go there. He takes a kitchen knife from the sink, and when he gets the spare keys for his work round from a small cupboard in the hall, he sees his child's baseball bat and takes that too. It's a 20-minute drive, maybe. The drink driving isn't foregrounded. He doesn't expect them to be there. The house was renovated to be sold, a property development, not somewhere the witnesses intended to live. He is owed £12,000. He needs the money. The witnesses have queried the accuracy of his invoices as a reason not to pay. So the defendant sent round a third party, another builder, who confirmed that his work is up to scratch and tells them that the bill is right. One item they query is that he invoiced for 186 square metres of tiling. The witnesses claim there are only 160 square metres of tiling. The third party measures the tiling to be 187 square metres. The dispute was handed to solicitors in April, but they're making no progress. The witnesses refuse to engage with him. By October, the lack of this money is impacting on a big job he's won, the biggest contract yet. He can't pay bills without this money. He's employed people. He says that the witnesses also owe their neighbour for work which he has done separately on their house. The defendant took weapons, yes, but only to cause damage. He wants to do the same amount in damage as they owe him, reclaim the money in that way. He intends to scratch the driveway with the knife and break things with the bat. He explains why he thinks the drive can be scratched, something about the materials it's made from, but it's not clear to me. When he pulls up in the van, he sees the cars and realises that they are at the house. He wants them to face him. They won't even meet him for coffee. They've been ignoring his texts and all his attempts to talk to them. That's why he goes inside the house. He doesn't remember seeing witness one at all, just going up the stairs where everything took place on the landing. Witness two is closest. Witness three is behind him. And suddenly everyone is grabbing at the weapons. There is no room for them to be side by side. At 800 mil, it just isn't wide enough. They're big men. Witness two grabs the bat and witness three leans over witness two, right over his shoulders to try to gouge the defendant's eyes with both of his thumbs. We're reminded of the photographs in the pack, the marks under the defendant's eyes. The pressure of witness three leaning on witness two pushes witness two into the knife, which the defendant is holding in his left hand, causing a series of accidental injuries to the right side of witness two. Witness two says, you've cut me, and the defendant throws the knife aside. There's a period of talking of trying to explain his intentions and, as a gesture of goodwill, he hands the bat to witness two. Witness three takes this opportunity to push the defendant and witness two into the bathroom, causing witness two to fall to his knees as he holds onto the defendant's arms. As witness two holds the defendant by the throat, not hard, he's not being strangled, witness three gets the bat and beats the defendant around the left side of his head four or five times. This is why the defendant bites Witness 2's upper arm, to make him let go so he can get away from being beaten. This is when Witness 3 catches Witness 2 with the bat, once on the right side of his head. It might also account for the damage to the door frame, as Witness 3 stands on the threshold, half in the bathroom. This coincides with the loud escalation in the CCTV audio, and that section is replayed. The prosecution suggests that the defendant is shouting fucking have it. He says he hears it as leave me boys. I can't make out either statement. Self-defence is allowed so he doesn't know why they would deny hitting him. Earlier on the recording when the police are talking to witness three and the defendant on the landing. The defendant makes a reference to the internal CCTV to their being able to see what happened. He thinks the CCTV is on. He'd worked in the house long enough to know where the cameras were, but the recording is linked to the alarm system, and the alarm system wasn't on. The witnesses knew that he didn't. The defendant becomes a real person when you hear directly from him, and it's harder to rely on assumptions. Yet empathy isn't the same as acceptance. The use of boys still grates on me. The homophobic language of the CCTV is shocking, but the patronising boys irritates me more. He hardly says bits and bobs, so I wonder how cleaned up, how controlled his language is for the jury. Maybe it was a sign of his nerves during the police interview. But the relaxed camaraderie with the police officers, boys and girls, suggests an assumption that they will be on his side. I remember again how no one seems worried at the scene on the landing. The police show no concern over the blood or the weapons. I wonder how they can tell that there is no anger left, no further potential for violence. There is a lot of blood. I try to imagine myself into the scene and to his point of view. He's a straight white man. Maybe he believes he has leeway to make mistakes. It takes me back to the calm deliberation he showed on the CCTV, progressing around the property with no thought of being stopped. He looks like he owns the place. Whatever we decide, the jury is going to have an impact on his life and hearing him speak helps to draw that into focus. After the case, I find very little about anyone involved online, but the defendant's Facebook page is still there. It shows his three interests, family, work and football. In September 2019, he's talking about a big job in London, multiple high-specification commercial units and flats. Nine days before the incident, he was at a football match with his son, both of them wearing their named shirts. Two nights before, he posts a photo of a local restaurant he's gone to for a meal. Then it stops. Two character witness testimonies are read out in support of the defendant. He has helped one in their career and the other knows him personally. The defence rests their case. It feels strange arriving at the court on Wednesday morning, thinking that this could be the last time I am here. After four days of testimony, the prosecution and defence have summarised and closed their cases, and now we look up to the bench. Until now, the judge has had a central but almost sidelined role. He speaks to us and the first three witnesses in a comforting way, smiling a lot. He reminds me of Giles Brandreth, authoritative but approachable. When counsel wants to replay a recording, he checks whether any repetition is really necessary, always being conscious of our time and the court's. On this fifth day, the judge gives us pages of guidance, with instructions on how to address and answer the question of the three remaining charges. For the charge relating to the baseball bat, we have to decide whether or not it had been taken in order to harm a person, and not just to intimidate or damage property. For the most serious charge of aggravated burglary, we have to be certain there was intent to cause grievous bodily harm, and that intent could have been hours or seconds earlier. For the charge of actual bodily harm, the intention of the defendant didn't have to be considered, as recklessness would be enough to convict. The guidance is supplied on paper for us to study, and the judge also reads it through to get it on the record. It is the last thing we are going to hear, the only thing left to know. Now we have to fix the last pieces in place and write the ending. The judge has some final words. As you may know, the law permits me, in certain circumstances, to accept a verdict which is not the verdict of you all. Those circumstances have not as yet arisen, so that when you retire I must ask you to reach a verdict upon each one of you is agreed. Should, however, the time come when it is possible for me to accept a majority verdict, I will give you further direction. I was surprised later to find these exact parting words to us online under Criminal Practice Directions 2015, Division 6. So convincing and earnest was his delivery, I had thought these words were created just for us. This judge devised his time between the Crown Court at Chelmsford and the Royal Courts of Justice in London, where he sits as the Deputy High Court Judge. Hugely experienced, I thought back to the Friday where he gave up the fight and, sitting below the Royal Coat of Arms, had to remove his wig and robes because the conditions were so unbearable. (laughs) The Court prepares to adjourn to allow the jury to start deliberations. Two ushers stand in front of the judge to take their oaths to keep us apart in some private and convenient place where no one can influence us. Having transformed from ushers into jury bailiffs, they escort us back to the lounge. We have to place our mobile phones in a metal locker, which doesn't lock, in an area I think was connected to the kitchen, or maybe it was the kitchen originally. It is now packed with tables, presumably moved for social distancing, and the bailiffs sit there in the dark as they can't get the lights to work. We return to our chairs. Occasionally someone makes a valiant attempt to swap position, but we cling viciously to our territory, and each sit in the chair we chose, or have been left with, on the first day. All we have to do now is choose our full person, and collectively provide an ending to this story. What happens during deliberation is at the heart of any public trial and at the same time, completely secret. Forbidding any discussion ensures that we all take joint responsibility for the verdict. Other jurors that I spoke to about other cases referred to having people who were disengaged or prejudiced. That is not the case with our jury. Throughout, everyone is trying to do their best and weigh the evidence fairly. We sit in the room, have our lunch and talk, and we can't agree. It feels devastating. 2020 has been a year of limbo to one extent or the other. The trial will begin and end, but if it ends without a verdict, it will be like the rest of the year, just wrong. Equally, we can't force a decision either. There was a period early on the second morning when we were being called down to court and one of us hadn't arrived. The ushers were discussing trying to contact him by phone and informing the judge when the juror rushed in. He tried to cheap a car park not realising how much longer it would take him to get there. It was a matter of minutes, but I realised I would feel cheated if I couldn't see the case through. It turns out that a case can continue with nine jurors, even if it has to start with twelve. In an interview this summer, the writer Emma Klein said that time has gone so sticky and this seemed a perfect way to describe what has happened to the idea of time this year. It's almost impossible to grasp what month we're in. In October it still felt a bit like March, with other parts of months attached. Looking back over the summer, the court case is the only event which is distinct, concentrating on one clear thing to give me a sense of purpose in the absence of so much else. In July... I hadn't yet met up with any friends unless I'd bumped into them in the street, where we would exchange rumours about which bottle banks were open. The jury is the largest group of people I've been with since a book festival the previous September. I've grown to be fond of Chelmsford, and will miss getting the train when it is over, but this day ends with a note which I give to the bailiff and she gives to the judge. As we wait to be called back down, some security guards and ushers run through the jury lounge asking, did anyone come through here? A prisoner has escaped. I have no idea how he knows his way through all these stairs and corridors, but they don't find him. I know now that a jury must deliberate for two hours and ten minutes before a judge will consider a majority verdict. This includes two hours for deliberating and ten minutes for walking to and from the court. In our court, the judge tells us that he will give us guidance on reaching a majority verdict in the morning and then we are dismissed for the day. Each of us has to walk past the defendant's wife sobbing outside the court. I feel utterly responsible because I have ended up as Madam Foreman. I have failed. Episode four of the Summer of Spying is the fourth of five weekly episodes which explore what happened in a court case tried in 2020 during the pandemic. From the point of view of juror and author Sarah Armstrong. In the next episode, we have another go at deliberation. If you can't wait to hear what happened, or you'd like more background information on the story behind the case, check out the show notes for a link to the ebook which accompanies this podcast, published by Sandstone Press.